You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, what an awesome way to celebrate what God is doing here at North Canton Chapel. I don't know if you heard it. There were actually kazoos in the background of Logan's baptism. It's such a good celebration. Um, just a quick word. I think reflecting on what God is doing, whether that's globally through our missions partners, Mark and Gina Schmidt in Guatemala, regionally through raising almost half a million dollars through Faith and Stark, um, and even locally here celebrating baptism. Um, I think it's it's just awesome to reflect on God's activity is often at least for me, it's the, it's the best cure when I feel stuck in inactivity. And uh, I'll, I'll bet you the same way. So here's the thing. Baptism, um, this practice of symbolically celebrating the new life of a Christ follower, is, is a message really about one thing, and it's this. God is moving. Um, and isn't that what we all really want to feel today? Um, even though we're housebound, we're separated from friends and family, our rhythm and routine is all jacked up, God is still moving. That's not a question, it's a declaration. Um, his kingdom only moves in one direction, and that's forward. And so whether you're new to the North Canton Chapel or you've been a part of this church for decades, um, I know you can join me in celebrating the fact that we have an ever, always moving God. So, um, well, today was supposed to be the fourth week in our series called Like Fire. Um, for the past three weeks, we've followed this image of fire in the early church. Uh, so from the first week, it was a seven-mile walk with a stranger and a uh, candlelight dinner, if you want to look at it like that. The second week, it was a beachside breakfast, a campfire in the early morning mist. And then last week, Pastor Dave uh, brought us to a room full of disciples who were just awestruck at the Holy Spirit. Um, these scenes paint a portrait of life in the early church that it's dangerous, unpredictable, and ultimately very beautiful. And we had one more week to go, but um, in preparation for this week, um, I felt like God was asking me to get off the highway uh, a little bit earlier than I had planned and kind of stick to a back road for a minute. Um, I think many of you know that we actually plan our teaching series here at the North Canton Chapel um, weeks and sometimes even months in advance, um, but we always allow for room, um, even at the last moment, to say, okay, Holy Spirit, what are you calling us to do this week? And um, I feel like this is just one of those weeks. So um, honestly, as I was preparing um, this fourth message, which maybe we'll get to one day, um, I felt like God was really pulling me somewhere else. And um, so recently for me, I've, I've felt something recently, and I'm willing to bet that maybe you have too. Um, God seems to be doing some really deep, fundamental, elemental things in, in my own life, just really deep inside. God has drawn me to this place, and he's forced me to confront um, these really basic feelings like fear and hopelessness, even despair sometimes. Um, and he's showing me that sometimes the feelings that, at least on the surface, don't initially feel so scary, things like just boredom or just restlessness, um, they often have their roots some, somehow usually very um, in a deeper place inside me. And um, there have been days recently for me where like, I feel myself swinging you know, almost violently from this like, very pastoral, quiet contentment of a cup of coffee uh, sitting on the recliner to this like, simmering fear of uncertainty. 
Um, and for me, these are just deep places that are often not traveled. And um, I'm willing to bet that you, you've probably felt a little bit of the same. And so this morning, we're, we're cutting our series short, and we're moving into the, uh, the book of the Psalms. We're heading back to Psalms just for one week. And I've said this before, but I think that if Psalms had a subtitle, it would be Permission to Speak Freely. It's this deeply personal book where the raw emotions tumble out without the caution of self-censorship. Um, it's where these deep convictions are formed by reflecting on still deeper truths. Um, it's where our hearts are encouraged and our souls find resonance. Um, and so if you've ever struggled to find hope in the blur of the crazy, Psalms is the book for you. But Psalms is more than just this emotional roller coaster meandering with, with no end in sight, leading nowhere. It has a point, and that point is a person. And we're going to get to that in about 20 minutes or so. Um, so today, I want to take us to Psalm 42 and 43, these deep meditations that teach us that our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. Our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. So since we're throwing the car in reverse from the early church, like back 500 years in history, let's get our bearings a little bit. So Psalm 42 and 43. First off, who, who wrote these psalms? Um, if you've got a hard copy of God's Word in front of you, you might notice that there's some small print near the top. And um, it's right before verse 1. It says, the sons of Korah. So who are these guys? Uh, well, Korah himself actually lived during the time of Moses, and he was actually not a really good dude. Um, all you need to know is that after the people left Egypt and before they moved into the promised land, Korah led a rebellion because he thought he should be the one to lead God's people in worship rather than the person that God appointed. And so he rallied 250 other people around him and created this big insurrection that got so bad that God actually took him out of the picture completely. The book of Numbers that tells this story says that the, the, the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the men of Korah. So not a good picture. What's the point is that God takes worship very seriously. So the lesson must have worked because hundreds of years later, um, his grandsons turned things around. King David appointed his descendants as worship leaders in the temple. And so all throughout David's time and um, during the time of the prophets, all the way through the exile, God used this family of musicians to write 11 psalms um, that give rise and voice to the feelings of God's people. Uh, these two psalms specifically, Psalm 42 and 43, uh, fit into this really terrible time in um, God's or the history of God's people called the exile. And we've done a lot of study in and around the exile um, recently, the book of Haggai, Nehemiah, those are kind of around that time period. And it's important to remember what God's people were feeling. They're away from their homeland. Their routine and their rhythm is disrupted. They have no freedom. Babylon rules the world, and there's nothing they can do about it. They have no certainty. They have no indication about when God is going to restore them. And the sons of Korah, like every other writer in Scripture, God uses their times and their life to give rise to feelings that ultimately shape their writing. In this case, they were captives away from their homeland in Babylon. So that's the backdrop of these psalms. Now, quick aside, um, even though we can relate to a taste of what that's like in a COVID-19 world, we should resist the urge to unnecessarily read our current cultural context into the Babylonian exile. Yes, we have uncertainty. Yes, we're wrestling with deep faith issues. Yes, we're afraid of the future. 
but none of us have been forcibly dragged out of our homes um, and enslaved by a pagan king. Okay, so we get this, but we don't get this. And I just want to say that just to keep our perspective. So um, a second tidbit before we get going. Sons of Korah wrote them, but then you'll notice if, when you see them uh, that there's actually two psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, but they look very, very similar. And each one has the same rhythm broken down into three parts. It goes lament and then hope. And I want to watch, I want to encourage you to watch for this rhythm this morning as we go through these psalms. It goes lament, hope, lament, hope, lament, hope. Now, maybe you've never wondered this, but for those of you who have, um, the chapters and verses in our Bibles didn't come until much later, like the 13th century. And scholars, you know, have offered all kinds of ideas as to why this psalm was broken down into two parts, and I don't want to waste time speculating on that this morning. But for now, just know that it's helpful to see these two psalms as going together. So, last piece of introduction before we get into the text. Um, I said that these two psalms are lament psalms. Now, we don't do lament very well in our culture. Uh, lament requires vulnerability, emotional honesty, security, and ultimately trust. Lament is a decision to go public with these deep feelings of injustice, saying, God, this is not right, and I don't know what to do. Lament is healing, but it's also debilitating. It's unlocking the deepest places inside of you, letting the door swing wide open, and letting whatever happens, happen. This isn't a praise psalm, although there's elements of God's greatness here for sure. This isn't a thanksgiving psalm. If anything, it's a what's with the taking psalm. There's no still waters, no green pastures here. Instead, you've got dry creek beds and silence. The psalm is not quaint, but it's beautiful. It's not easy, but it's satisfying. And it's in these places of profound longing that God's truth shines through. Taken together, these psalms teach us that our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. So let's get to it. Psalm 42, verse 1. And we'll read these first five verses just straight through. Here we go. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, those words hit so close to home, it's almost eerie, isn't it? In the throes of his cultural setting, this Babylonian exile, this captivity, the writer starts out with this idea of thirst, which is something we can all relate to. Well, what's he thirsting for? He says it. He's not just thirsting for comfort or a return to normal. He's thirsting for God himself. He's like an exhausted deer panting for refreshment. We shouldn't see this as this quaint pastoral scene with like this calm doe, like leisurely lapping up water from a gentle brook. That's not this at all. He's an exhausted animal, desperate for something to cool this dry burn inside. And his question at, at the end of verse two, I don't know if you caught it, where he says, when shall I come and appear before my God? It's almost rhetorical. 
The Hebrew here is really rich. It could almost be translated as, when will I see the face of God again? It's like he's saying, God, I feel like you've hidden your face from me. I can't see what you're doing. I don't know what's going on. You ever feel that way? Sure you do. And maybe you feel that way even right now this morning. It's easy to imagine the writer sitting in the gutter of a dusty Babylonian street, 900 miles away from home. He's tired. He's exhausted from worried days and sleepless nights. He's frustrated. God seems like a silent actor on an otherwise empty stage. He's fearful. What does it mean when God can't be found? What a horrifying thought. And as he sits down to write, salty tears come to his eyes, water that he'd rather use for refreshment. Maybe a passerby kicks dirt, taunting at him, saying, I thought you guys were supposed to be the people of God. Where is God now? And the hardest part is that in verse 3, he honestly doesn't know. He has no answer. And so the only thing he can do is remember. Now, remembering for the Hebrew mind It's not just sitting back and thinking on things that happened in the past that were good, like, man, I I really want baseball right now in a big way. I really want to have a barbecue with my friends or my family. Remembering is this willful exercise to replay God's goodness in the past. It's like rewinding a tape and watching it again, rewinding a tape and watching it again. Forgetting the opposite would be like unlearning everything that you've been taught about God. So what's he do? He sits back and he closes his eyes and he remembers God's goodness in the past. And it takes the form of gathered worship in the house of God, loud singing with God's people. And then instantly aware of his soul's inner wrenching, he turns inward and talks to himself. In verse 5, he says, Why are you downcast or why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Or do you ever do that? You talk to yourself? I do all the time. This is a good permission. You should talk to yourself, especially when what you're saying is reminding that above all else, God is a trustworthy place for all our hope. And that's the tough thing for us, isn't it? Because we are people of conviction and belief. We are future set. We confess confidently the goodness of God, but we're also creatures who are time bound and we are living in and experiencing the pains and sorrows of the moment. This is the Old Testament version of, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I think what's most helpful for us this morning is that the psalmist realizes what so few of us do. That our deepest need is not for life to return to normal. Our deepest need is not for the circus to stop. Our deepest need is not for politicians to see things our way or for our world to be set right. Our deepest need is God himself, God's ultimate provision And so as he remembers, even these things that come to his mind, as beautiful as those images are, they're not what he's really after. His ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. And already in the psalm, God is laying the groundwork, setting the table for us to understand something. That the blessings that we enjoy, these things that get us through life, they aren't the provision itself. And we'll get to that in a little bit more as as we go further. These things like jobs and families and sunsets and friendships and laughter and love, these are the trail of breadcrumbs that lead us somewhere else to someone else. And sometimes, like I know it, North Canton Chapel, sometimes those breadcrumbs are fearfully and frighteningly far apart. And you can't figure out where God's leading. And my word for you is do not lose heart. He is trustworthy. 
our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. So that's the first stanza, this internal pressure of thirst and drought. And while verse 5 gives us a little bit of a break and alleviates some tension, the relief doesn't last long. There's a second stanza, and now we're going to move into this overwhelming feeling of suffering in a fallen world. Take a look in verse 6. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you, there he is again, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls out to deep. I want to stop there for a second. Um, I mentioned a few minutes, minutes ago that God seems to be doing very deep things in a lot of us these days. And this is what that's like. Deep calls out to deep. The deep things in me calling out to and calling out for the deep things of God. This is saying, God, I don't want a Facebook fortune cookie theology. Don't give me cute quotes. I don't need quippy sayings. I need you and I need you now. This past week for me, um, on Tuesday morning, I got... I got news that a dear friend who's already in a vulnerable place was positively diagnosed with um, COVID-19. And I remember when I heard the news on Tuesday morning, I'm sitting at home, I'm at my desk, um, like laptop open, um, phone in my hand. And when, when the words that were coming through the receiver in my phone finally clicked, like the full implication of what that might mean for my friend, I just went, Ugh. like I had like no words. It was like, I hate that. It was like this swift and strong sucker punch to the gut and something very deep in me just broke and I couldn't say anything. It was just this deep thing going, Ugh. that's what he's talking about here. Deep calls out to deep. This is the psalmist normalizing suffering, giving us permission to feel overwhelmed. It's not right that we should have funerals with no mourners. It's not right that people should be sitting in a hospital bed with no one to visit them. We should never get comfortable with the reality that silent suffering is right. Things should not be this way. Dignity is peripheralized. Affection is like stifled. Like, I just want to hug somebody. Our sense of peace is desperately upset. But isn't it interesting how desperation brings clarity? We can complain about anything, can't we, as humans? We can find anything to complain about, but when the real stuff of life hits and we're so desperate for God to move, we're so thirsty for him, nothing else matters. And maybe that's something we need to consider. The hardest part of the psalm, though, is what happens next. Verse 7, where he says, Deep calls out to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, we're going to get back to the hopeful part in just a minute, but before we get there, here's something we've got to catch. Did you notice where the waterfalls, the breakers, and the waves, where do they come from? Whose are they? He says, your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. We can't rush past that. What's that mean? It means that God is free to bring hardship into our lives as a means of deepening our hope in him. Now, that is a big statement with huge implications. God is free to bring hardship into our lives as a means of deepening our hope in him. He owns the waterfalls. He owns the breakers. He owns the waves. My mind goes to Job. Like, if you've never read the book of Job, Job, the, con the consummate sufferer. <laughs> 
The waterfalls and breakers and waves of Psalm 42 are like the Fisher-Price inflatable kiddie pool for what Job went through. If you've never read Job, here's how God's word describes him. I'm just going to read it to you. It says that Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. Good man, right? I'd like that description. He has seven sons, three daughters, thousands of sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, or servants, like good setup. I like that. Job eagerly loves his kids, he leads his family well, and he continually worships God. And then one day, it's all wiped out in one day. Livestock, family, everything, gone. What's Job's response? Here's what he says. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. You're like, okay, stoic. Thanks for that. But then he gets theological. He says, the Lord gives. And we're like, yes, yes, I love that, God. Every blessing that I enjoy in my life is a gift from you. My friends, my family, all of that. God, that all comes from you. The Lord takes away. Whoa. Like, I'm not, I'm not okay with that. I'm not sure I agree with that point. But then Job says something that, on the face of it at least, is the most outwardly ludicrous thing that he could possibly say. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And now he sounds like a masochist. Like, really? You're worshiping now? Are you serious? God gave you what you enjoy, and then he took it away from you, and you want to worship him? Like, what kind of diseased brain, sick heart, twisted soul could say something like that? It's almost inhuman. And then just to make sure we get the right impression, the text concludes by saying, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's incredible. What's the point? The point is that when the water falls and the breakers and the waves come, as they inevitably will, we should neither rush to excuse God from the courtroom, nor should we seek to acquit him of the charges because he is not on trial. He is God. Those are his waterfalls. They are his breakers and those are his waves. And he brings them into our lives because he is free to do so to drive our hope deeper. But here's the real question underneath all of that. Because there is this lingering question. Is God the author of this kind of suffering? And that's the real question because the anticipatory subtext is because I can't worship a God who allows suffering in his world. Suffering's from the devil. That's people. That's other stuff. That's not from God. God wouldn't do that. And here's the tension I have for you. Either you have a small God who never permits suffering, which incidentally is a way easier gospel to preach. Man, I'd love to do that. That'll sell books Right? The idea of a God that only makes my life easy. Sounds good. I'm in. Where do I sign up for that kind of deal? The only problem is that on the pathway to presenting a gospel that never mentions suffering, I sever God from his sovereignty and in the process come out with a gospel that is no gospel at all. And so what we have to say is that while suffering is a terrible consequence of living in a fallen world, and while suffering is the consequence of sinful people doing sinful things, suffering must somehow also be underneath the sovereign decree of an almighty God. I don't know how that works. Otherwise, God would be under reacting to, subserving it to something else. Something else would be running the universe. The universe would become this capricious, willy-nilly car without a steering wheel waiting to slam into the next tree. 
But here's the gospel truth. God always works for our good. But God's good is bigger than our comfort. God's good is wider than our conveniences. God's good is deeper than our immediate desires. And guys, that is such a hard gospel to preach right now. Waterfalls, breakers, and waves overwhelm us. But one thing I want you to hang on to that we have to remember in the face of unreasonable suffering, the God who sends the waves is the same God who walks on them. And that idea stirs my soul. The God who sends the waves is the same God who walks on them. And that's why in a little bit this morning, we're going to sing, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That's talking gospel truth to your heart. Whatever my lot, which is just an Edwardian way of saying, whatever comes, no matter what, it is well with my soul. Why? Because King Jesus is on the throne. Remember where we started this morning. Our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in God's ultimate provision. And so exhausted, overwhelmed, and desperate, we can crash land into verse 11 that says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. It is God's mercy to teach us through whatever means necessary that he is enough, that he is good, that he is wonderful. And all of my longing will only ever be met in him. So that's the second stanza. First stanza, this inward pressure of thirst and drought. Second stanza, the overwhelming pressure of suffering in a fallen world. And now third stanza, the social pressure and walking through constant darkness. Psalm 43, verse 1. Let's pick it up. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Well, this just got sideways, didn't it? All of a sudden, now we've got not just vertical problems, we've got horizontal problems. Right off the bat, three descriptors. He says there's ungodly people, deceitful and unjust. It's clear that now there are social implications for choosing to follow a God in the midst of suffering. And then the quickest turn that we've read this morning happens in verse two. He says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? What's with that? Like he's taken refuge in God and then God rejects him. It's like he's saying, God, I was running outside through a storm. It was pouring down rain and I was drenched to the bone. I was scared. And then I saw you. And I thought, you could give me comfort. You could give me the rest that I need. You could be my shelter. So I went inside, but no sooner did I get inside your door than you kicked me back out into the cold. That's strong language. You ever feel that way? Of course you do. Like God just bait and switched you. This is the most raw that the writer has been because he's actually implying that God has a character issue. He says, God, you're supposed to be this way, but you're this. I thought you were this way, but you turned out this way. Everyone says that you're a tower, a shelter, a fortress, a rock. But what good is a fortress that you can't get into, a tower that falls over, and a rock that breaks you? And this is where the psalm actually comes full circle. Verse 3. 
Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of my God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He exposes his ultimate hope, rescue. And he waits for God's ultimate fulfillment, comfort. And then he begs for God's ultimate provision, God himself. And he's right back to where he started. He says, God, I want you and only you. So where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do with this? This dump truck load of emotion. As a church, I want us to understand what's happening in this psalm because there's something really beautiful and really powerful happening. Um, It's this ancient practice that we really need to recover. The writer is gospeling himself. Now, when I say the word gospel, your mind can go to a billion things. You can think about like a tract that people used to leave at restaurants or like a kind of music or whatever. But I think we need to start to see gospel as a verb, something that we do. And what do I mean? Pastor and author Jeff Vanderstelt puts it this way. He has a beautiful definition. He says, gospeling ourselves is paying attention to the overflow of our hearts. What comes out in the form of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors finds its origin inside of us. It's like fruit on a tree. We have to look at the roots. What's he mean? Tell me if you've ever had this experience. You're anxious. Your heart is racing. Your mind can't stop. And somewhere back there, you heard that Christians shouldn't feel anxious. So you do what most people do. You shame yourself for those anxious feelings and you resolve to be a better Christian. Anybody been there? How's that going? Now, how about this one? You're angry. Somebody treated you unfairly. They kicked dirt in your face when they could have given you a cup of water. You were marginalized and it was unjust. But Christians don't get angry, do they? So you knuckle down and suppress those emotions rather than listen to them as a cue for what's really going on and you do your best to get over it. Feeling better? No, you're not. Last one. You're afraid. You've lost control. Maybe you never had control, but things aren't going as you planned, not even according to your worst case scenario projection. And that's a fearful place to be. But Christians aren't afraid, are they? So you put on your happy Christian poker face and you try to do your best. What's my point? Too many Christians spend so much time taping fake fruit to the tree of their life that they never dig down to address the roots of their unbelief. Too many Christians spend so much time taping fake fruit to the tree of their life that they never dig down to address the roots of their unbelief. Gospeling yourself is a practice that means three things. And for you note takers who like alliteration, they all start with the letter R. So here you go. Tell me if you don't see these in this psalm. First practice of gospeling yourself is recognizing my unbelief recognizing my unbelief, these things that I'm actually believing, and then repenting of that untruth, agreeing with God that that's wrong, and then three, replacing it with God's truth. So recognizing my unbelief, repenting of untruth, and then replacing it with God's truth. And that's all this psalm is. And it's why it's so captivating. It's why it's so beautiful. It's because we can relate to it and it's just real. 
First, it's saying, God, here's what I'm actually believing about you. I'm recognizing these things that are not true. These areas of unbelief in my life. Not the pious stuff I'm supposed to say, but the real honest gut stuff that I'm honestly embarrassed to admit that I feel. And you've got to have the courage to get that stuff out. It's recognizing my unbelief. But then two, saying, God, those things aren't true. You're not a falling tower. You're not rejecting me. You're not giving up on me. You're not kicking me out. You're not unfaithful. And then the third part is going, God, your word says that you are good. Your word says that you are kind. You redeem your people. You've chosen me. You call me your child. You're great, so I don't have to be in control. You're good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. You're glorious, so I don't have to fear others. And you're gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. The gospel is not just something we believe. It's something that we do. And in a world reeling in confusion, needs Christians who know how to gospel our own hearts with God's truth. Last bit, and then we'll wrap up for today. And this is my favorite part. And it's buried in that refrain, that chorus, that refrain, that three times repeated phrase, hope in God for I shall yet praise him. And then he gives him two reasons why. He says, he's my salvation and my God. Salvation, it's this wonderful Hebrew word, means Yeshua, literally means God saves, Yeshua. Moses said it at the banks of the Red Sea when he said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of our God. David said it when God delivered him from the hand of Saul. He said, great salvation he brings to his king forever. Isaiah, looking forward to this one day Messiah, the Lord is my strength, my song, and my salvation. And so the, the psalmist just adds his words to this hundred year long chorus of this song saying, I hope in you, my Yeshua and my God. Now, take a wild guess how you say Jesus' name in Hebrew. Yeshua. God saves. And so what we're getting here, buried in the folds of this lament psalm, is this 500-year-long foreshadowing of the name that is above every name, who conquers despair, who's victorious over death, who loves you, and whose broken body and shed blood bought your salvation. Our ultimate hope, right? Our ultimate hope finds its ultimate fulfillment and God's ultimate provision. Who is his ultimate provision, church? It's himself. Stepping into the world that he made and giving himself. So as we wrap up today, I can't shame you out of anxiety. And I don't really want to because that doesn't help you and it doesn't work. All I can do is point you to the one who says, come on, easy yoke light burden. Let me carry that for you. No other Savior does what Jesus does because no other Savior is who Jesus is. Nothing on earth gives what Jesus can give. And I'd miss the point here today if I didn't tell you how to receive what he's offering. And so I want to lead you in a prayer for just a moment. And so I realize maybe you're, you're sitting at home watching on your couch. Uh, maybe you're holding a phone or maybe you're driving in your car. So if you're driving, don't close your eyes. Um, but for the rest of us, let's just take a moment in quiet. And let's bow together. Father, for those of us who know you, help us to trust you. To trust you with these emotions that we'd rather not acknowledge, but to trust you that you can handle it 
It's just good to know that you call us your children and that our future is secure. And Father, for those that are watching today, whether they found us on Facebook or um, just kind of cruising around and they happened upon this video, God, maybe they don't know you. And they hear, you know, hear me talk about anxiety and they hear us talk about your word and your goodness and they're just unsure. God, if that's somebody watching today, open their hearts, open their ears. And so if that's you, I wanna invite you to just pray a prayer with me quietly in the quietness of your heart in your living room, in your car, wherever you are this morning. A prayer that could go something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I've tried things my way and it doesn't work. God, I've broken your law and I've broken your heart. I could never earn my way back to you. But God, you've given me your son, Jesus. I accept and I recognize that he is the fulfillment that my soul craves and he's the biggest and best and ultimate provision that you gave us. So Father, I just confess my need of you and I recognize the sufficiency of Christ on the cross. So Father, I wanna follow you the rest of my life. Here's my life and take it. All my fears, all my anxieties, Father, I love you. So Father, today, for all of us, no matter where we stand or sit or what we're feeling, God, we just wanna confess that you are good, you are loving, you are enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.